Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Peter Wheeler. Peter is a serial entrepreneur, and he describes himself as a, f- a proud failpreneur. We're going to look at how do you make the best out of a bad situation. Many of us are going to be catastrophizing. We're going to be time traveling both into the past and into the future, recalling past events and catastrophizing how we might be suffering from them again and worrying about the future without any real insight as to what's happening. We have a tendency to get blindsided by our backgrounds. In Peter's case, one of his big blindsides is operating on trust and positive intent. When he then went out into the bigger marketplace, working with enterprises, working internationally, and discovering the importance of reaching enforceable agreements. So today, I'm delighted to welcome as my guest, Peter Wheeler. Hey, thanks. How did I get on your moping work stream? Why, why moping. Like on the downer show? <laughs> no, no, all, all of my all of my shows start that way, but there's always an upside, which is there's a better way. So that's what we're working towards. So the whole idea of being able to make the best out of a, a bad situation, that's got to be optimistic, surely. Got to be. Gotta there be. we go. So Peter, give us a couple of minutes on your history and the kind of businesses that you've run in the past and what qualifies you to have this conversation today. Gotcha. So I, I'll throw out there, this is personal experiences. This is uh, in no way representative of my employers, past nor present. And uh, it's my opinion. And then there we go. So I had to throw that out there. My history, uh, like I said, serial entrepreneur, I'll go into, uh, for me, there's uh, some ethnic background stuff that's pretty important. I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, Midwest, United States, kind of a Southern city in the North. And so we have high segregation. There's actually a BBC documentary about, we have a fine line of segregation in this town. And I'm an interracial kid. And so I was raised mostly by the side of the family that I don't look like, the black side of my family. And I participated in a lot of that culture. And I even went to, they had a desegregation program for schools. And I was, my brother and I were the white kids on the black bus to the point where my brother was, was pulled off one of the buses by a teacher who said, you don't know where that goes. And he said, yeah, this is, this is how I get home. But uh, yeah, what that what that did for me was it gave me a lot of perspective. Absolutely. And it gave me interesting perspective because the white side of my family wasn't necessarily of any stature or prominence when I was growing up. Later, that, that changed. But the black side of my family was of the black bourgeoisie. And right. we have a public library in St. Louis, the only one that was named non-posthumously. That's a really hard way of saying she was still alive when they named it after her. Wow. And um, what that did was I confused. I'm still confused. We're right in the middle of a Black History Month. And I catch myself code switching. And I catch myself having this diverse cultural understanding. My current role right now is in corporate social impact. That's a a section of it. I'm not a DEI professional, but I I get it. And um, it really made me learn perspectives. And it made me really good at sales and marketing. Gave me a passion in it and dealing and interacting with people. And from that, I have been, I'm, I'm what they call a polymath. I tinker in everything. I finish nothing, but I'm mirthful. So I'm the mirthful polymath. <laughs> and uh, that's given me a ton of adventures. And I've been published good and bad in many publications, stories about me or my work. And uh, yeah, 
That's me. Wow, I did it really short. Usually I just say I'm guest on with the life path of Forrest Gump, but you let me knock it out. So thanks, bud. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, okay, so let's start with the really, really, really big questions. As you look at the state of sales and marketing through the eyes of an entrepreneur who is undoubtedly being pitched products uh, with your roller octa, uh, I imagine people want slice of your time. When you're on the receiving end of a sales or marketing approach, what is it that you look for that makes you think, yes, this is worthy of my attention? And, well, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, yeah, buddy. And, and, and what is it that would switch you off? There's a case in point from this morning. We'll get to that in just a second. So for me, I, I came up, I spent a decade in the car industry, working my up from, from eBay salesperson in the late 90s. I was very cutting edge to a general manager of a three-store dealership by the time I was 22. Wow. And um, when I left that industry, I started doing the uh, what they call lifestyle and after sales for BMW. I came on as a consultant, opened a boutique inside of a dealership. And that that near decade that I spent in the car industry, I watched it get lazy. People used to remember folks' names. They used to build their book of business and know when kids were born and when they were coming up and, hey, somebody's about to turn 16, let's sell a new car to the parents and get them to push the old car into their kid. And that went away. The car industry started becoming about order taking. Prices were fixed. Now, I'm not defending the car industry. There's a lot of dirt in it. There's a lot of shady business. There's a lot of unethical practices. But what I'm trying to cover is just that the salespeople cared and they made an effort. And it wasn't necessarily they cared about their commission. They also cared about their customer. They were doing best fit. If somebody came in with a with a family of six, they were certainly going to push them into a minivan or SUV as opposed to a two-door roadster. And that that later era of the prices are what they are, you order what you order, And I'm here just to check boxes on your menu and not be an actual salesperson. I'm amazed that that industry hasn't become more automated. I'm amazed that people just don't walk up and click on a tablet and from some vending machine, their car comes Well, that is happening. I'm seeing adverts on uh, UK TV for companies where um, you sell your car on the internet and within 30 seconds, they'll give you a valuation. You can press yes or no and they buy it, and it doesn't matter what state it's in. And you can buy a car sight unseen and have it delivered, and you've got 14 days to send it back. Right. I know someone who's buying, who bought a house for nearly half a million dollars doing that, and he'd never seen the house before he, he moved in. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, but that, that's you, happening already. So those order takers, you're right, they're going to be yeah. taken out. If you don't have a salesperson that's interested in getting to know you, and interested in in solving your problem. We've gotten to a point now where salespeople are trying to sell their product or evangelize their platform, but not involve themselves with you personally or in this, this greater scheme that we're talking about, the $100 million organizations where they're uh, involving themselves in community. And, and I'll get into that in a little bit because that's a big part of my practice in my current role. But case in point this morning, I have a very, very, very big published background in experiential marketing. And there's a woman that has me on auto dial on LinkedIn for pitching trade show booth technology, video games and other things like that. And 
Of course, I have a, a slight interest. And the follow-up question is always, are you interested in this? I'm like, why? You should know. What elements of this would I be interested in? What is my history? What is my past? What is Who am I? What kind of work have I done? This stuff is out there. It's full on my profile. It's on my personal website. You know, there, there's plenty of places to find these things out. Why have you not made any effort? And the feedback I got was, I find that to be stalking. I said, okay, interesting. That's definitely a new perception of, you clicked on my profile to connect. You certainly could have scrolled up and down to get a, a very rough idea who, of who I am and maybe target what products you have as opposed to throwing an entire catalog in my lap and, and hoping that I book a meeting with you. I think that speaks to the way the culture of those sales organizations have evolved because they're doing that kind of behavior probably because they're seeing that around them. They're encouraged to do it because I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be a unique experience for you. Um, I I would see that as the norm because that's certainly been the case with me when people are trying to contact me. So my feeling is what uh, we also have to look at is the division of labor in the revenue function with marketing and SDRs and BDRs and A's and then CS, then uh, account management. All of these different functions have meant that no one really has a relationship with the customer. And then the metrics mean that everyone's fixated on meeting those measurements rather than on prospecting for a customer who will be a customer in 20 years' time and solving their problem and being their ally. That stuff's gone. And your point that you made right at the beginning is we used to do that stuff. Now, I I know people who are making $100 million sales with nothing more than a CRM and a telephone. Um, And yeah, they use a bit of tech, but it's about the relationship. And that's been lost because we've been seduced by the idea that if you can measure it, you can control it. And measuring only happens in volume. So these new, these, oh, when the growth hacker came out, it's one of the most disgusting terms. I, I just can't handle it. And thankfully, that role seems to be peeling off the world. Oh, I didn't realize there was an actual job title, growth hacker. Oh, yeah. 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 And um, when the metric of volume came into play, pipeline volume, not quality, but volume, not even quantity, volume. And people resorted to these spray and pray tactics, like I got this morning. Or um, it's always funny, there's plenty of fish in the sea, just cast a wide net. And people would rather have thousands and thousands and thousands of inbound that maybe converts at 1%, 2% to a prospect that then converts to 1% or 2% of an active deal and 1% or 2% to a close. They feel that there's value in that. And I think that is such, it's so laborious. There's so much labor wasted in it. And it's got to be a terrible life to live. It is a terrible life to live. It's massively wasteful. And if I was an investor, I would be livid that that amount of waste was seen as acceptable. I mean, what what question, in my head, I have a question, which is a really simple one, but I'd be really curious. What question goes through your head when you see 1% converted to 1% converted to 1% converted? So you're down to um, one thousandth of a percent. 
conversion rates. And that's considered to be best practice and acceptable. What question goes through your head? I'm a big believer in you exist in a relationship as you start it. And you only get one chance at a first impression. So I'm not worried about the 1%. If people want to go that methodology and, and waste a ton of time, that's fine. But I have dozens of emails weekly, dozens of LinkedIn pitches weekly that I, I can itemize what organizations I won't do business with because they are marketing tech organizations. They are BDR sales organizations that don't have an ethos that aligns to my own, that don't sell like I do. So there is a quote from Dan Kennedy, which is, the price of free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. And I, that's going to be my next neck tattoo. <laughs> okay. So tell me this. If you had a blank sheet and you were starting your business from scratch, where would your starting point be? Well, it depends on what type of business. But let, let's say where I'm, where I'm selling now, one of the things that I'm very embedded in is community. Yeah. And something that marketers, oh, it's an old Eugene Schwartz stuff on branding. And one of the first steps is working with an unaware audience. And everybody has abandoned that. They want to build pipeline off of people that are very aware. That to me is very lazy. So being involved in community, being involved in full stakeholder spectrum, your customers, customers are your actual customers. They're, in my case, they're buying a feature within their own product. And that feature needs to be as good, if not better than their own product for their end customers. And so I focus heavily on community. I focus heavily on jobs to be done, not features. How does this individual feature affect what that individual is doing? And what that's done for me is, yeah, pipeline is not this big, robust, huge number, nor do I want it to be. But the conversion rate, and I, the MNPI kicks into play and everything else, but let's just say the conversion rate is massively healthy and anyone would be enviable of it. And my XDR team is enviable because we've gotten rid of the educational inbound. There's no need for demos mm -hmm. to happen. Sorry, because so again? There's no need for demos to happen. Really? Good yeah. luck. Listen, if your customer's customer is aware of what your product will do for them, if your customer is aware of the needs that their customer has, and they're hearing what their customer has to say, and they come to you as the best solution, because you've shown that you understand your customer and your customer's customer, you don't have to do an educational inbound. Mm -hmm. And that's where these 1% come into play. This The 99% of wasted time is this massive footprint, new to sales people being trained, not best practices as high volume MDRs, BDRs, SDRs, XDRs, ADRs, whatever you want to throw it out there as. And that's where this burnout's coming from. This is why people think sales is a dirty word. This is why customers aren't happy. They're baited with some thing. ABM is a great example. Come, I'll give you a free Yeti mug or I'll... I'll at least some of them, they donate to charity. But ABM should be an element of your total practice, not something that lures somebody through the door for a demo. Well, again, I think this is, the, we're, we're very closely aligned here. Nothing that you said jars with me, the jobs to be done, the community, all of that. 
what flabbergasts me is that because, I, th- I think it's because, the leadership comes from cold, direct new business. Everything that they see with their special hammer uh, looks like a nail. They're like uh, old generals preparing to fight the last war instead of the next one. And so they tend to overlay that thinking of command and control on the new technology. In the old days, when um, you had to go door knocking and it was a bit of a numbers game, then when you first started out, it was always a numbers game. Afterwards, it wasn't. When you were running your milk round, you knew the kids' birthdays and their names and what they were interested in when they were off to university and all of that stuff, because that was your job. And that's been lost because we've dehumanized the whole sales process and we've turned it into a factory function. Let's stick with that general analogy then. I do empathize with folks that are that detached from the process. In many cases, they're hearing from their own wallet or a board of directors or shareholders. And there's an expectation for glamour numbers and vanity numbers isn't fair. Those metric numbers that people can understand. And there's something about, do you amass an unskilled army of billions, aka fodder, or do you have skilled sections? What looks better from from the top of the hill when you're looking down on the battlefield? Thousands of standing soldiers or dozens of winning ones? That's hard because you have to articulate to many, many, many different audiences at that point. So what advice would you give to leaders who are facing a crunch point where they can continue to keep playing the numbers game revenue at any cost and you know, throw warm bodies at the problem and doesn't matter what human cost there is, or to take a different approach. What advice would you give them when they're having to make that decision? Because it's scary. It's easy enough to carry on as they are. If they do, no one will blame them. They may not be successful, but they're not going to get fired for doing something that people would consider to be not normal. But what you're suggesting is a bit of a heresy. So how can they prepare for that in such a way that when they sell it, they don't end up being caught in the crossfire? Let's just beat this one to death. Retreat. Okay. So one thing that that no one ever thinks is on the table, pull back, regroup, or just retreat altogether. Some fights aren't worth winning. And that's that's a hard thing for a lot of us when we have investment in something, whether we're throwing good people after bad problems and we lose those good people or throwing good money after bad money. I, yes, I've explored owning a boat at one point in my life. Um, <laughs> Felix Dennis says, if it floats, flies, or, flies or fornicates, rent it. Exactly. And <laughs> <laughs> no, for me, I, like, I, I've walked away from that type of role. I've been in the big seat. It's not fun. I, I do like being in the trenches. I, I like the strategy and the tactics. And the the deployment of the tactics. And, and I think when you get too far away from any one of those three, you don't exactly know what's going on. And when you get into those C-suites and those V-suites, you are very dependent on the accomplishments of the team that you work with, whether it be the manufacturing team, the product team, supply chain. This isn't just a digital environment thing. This is any sales environment. We used to sell something called the journey. Have you ever sold the customer journey? It's where you charge 100% for 80% of what you've promised. And the remaining time of the contract, you are talking the tale of the, where the improvements are happening and how they're your... Oh, my, one of the most disgusting words out there is when you call your customer your partner. Because that implies that they're with you to do your job as opposed to being an actual catered to 
customer. That's that was one of those things in the lexicon I, I wish would fall away and people would understand that. I um, just rambled, but deal okay. with it. No, 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 you didn't at all. I, I, I see things slightly differently. When I define sales, I, I believe it, first of all, should be the single most noble thing that you do in your business. Selling is the facilitation of buying, making the right decision for the customer for now and the future, whether it involves buying from me or not. And my job is to help them feel safer with me beside them on their buying journey throughout that process than without me. I need to be clear about when it's viable for me to help them and when I can't, so I can get out early and quickly. But I believe it's my job as a partner to help my partners get better. So it may be a question of semantics. What would you suggest as an alternative to being attempting to be a trusted partner by the customer? Because they do have partners. Honestly, that's not fair for anyone. And you're asking for, for a level of nobility that doesn't exist in scale. And where I'm getting at with this is that no one feels safe in being honest with their customer. It is rare that you hear, I'm not the best fit. Or you hear, let's look at the options you're exploring and doing it with the intent of making sure that they're in the right option. Or doing it with the intent of pivoting your option in a way that most aligns to their needs. That's such a great peek into somebody's mindset. What are you looking at? already. And they go, well, this, 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 and this, and we like you for these things. We don't like these particular things. And in your competitors, they have these additional stuff. And you go, oh, wow, our roadmap matches what you're praying for. Or we're just not going to be the right fit. I got shivers in my back saying it, having been a sales manager. Hearing that phrase, oh my goodness, what'd you do? We paid, this is our 1% pipeline. Mm -hmm. You don't know how much we paid for this. You don't know how much we paid to have it filtered. You don't know how much we paid in demos. You've now got this qualified lead. You accepted the meeting and you're saying, well, we tried, but what you found is a little bit better. And maybe 10 years from now we can revisit or maybe at the end of your contract cycle, we'll be the better fit and let's keep in touch. No no salesperson feels safe saying that. No. And it's also important that the best salespeople that I've ever met are happy being vulnerable And they have the courage to do so because they know that by being honest and transparent with their customer, they build massive credibility. But the problem is that most of us have been conditioned to distrust everybody. And the models that we operate in are we compete, we reluctantly coexist, or we collaborate at the end of a very long arm with their thick legal contracts. But the reality is I know big deals are being struck because as rep has good relationships with the right people. They've spent the time doing their research. They know the industry. They know the competitive landscape. They've done their uh, thinking and they've brought something of value that isn't about the technology. What they offer is a means to an end to get the job done. They recognize that they're just a moving part and the customer doesn't wake up in the morning thinking, my God, I want to buy some of this stuff. You don't? I wake up salivating at the idea of of being pitched MarTech. (laughs) <laughs> the next best option. And you said means to an end. And that's that's where so many people drop the deal at close. There's no CSM in play. There's no customer experience. There's no customer advocacy. And there's so many salespeople I've met that don't realize the free money in contract expansion. Keep up with your product team. Keep up with your utilization team and say, hey, 
my 10 accounts from this time last year, where do they sit? Are they good for expansion? Are they good for renewal? What's the health score? This is where your ABM comes into play. This is where you start gifting, not, not to get a demo, well, they, to, to warm up the coffee. Exactly. And this, this is the point. We know that about 3% of cold cycles that you start end up in a closed deal. We know that when a referral occurs, that roughly one in six instead of one in 21 or uh, whatever, close. But those referrals convert at two and a half times the average order, uh, initial order value on average. This is off the back of uh, research from 650,000 small businesses. So two and a half times higher initial order value, three times higher repeat order frequency, and four times higher average conversion rate. But that's not the good stuff. It's when you sell hot. And to touch on your expansion sales, there was a 2019 study in SAS that showed that new business generates 18% profit, expansion sales 1150% profit on average. Why would you work for one sixty-fourth of the profit and then have to go out and with all of those motions, have to invest that time, the follow-up calls, the chasing, the email spam, the dials, the follow-ups, the chasing, and everything all over again? Why wouldn't you just get referred? Churn. Sticking with what you're you're talking about there, my current role, I am heavily embedded in this month's buzzword because pickleball has finally moved on of product-led growth. Yeah. And there's so many people doing it wrong. And my audiences in product-led growth are technical partnerships, developers, startups, nonprofits. I don't know how I have, you have the retention for it. I thought I had a phenomenal memory. But um, my anecdotal findings, one of my favorite conversations with a nonprofit was one good referral from somebody I trust is worth 10,000 hours of research in time that I don't have. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Why are we not guaranteeing that customer experience after the sale? So even pre-sales though, in product-led growth, everybody's chasing these freemium models. Everybody's chasing free trial demos or starter plans or, you know, the credit card swipe lifestyle. And they don't have their phase two in mind. They don't have in mind where the, the next best fit is. What is your gap between your mid-tier, high-tier self-service plan and your enterprise plan? What is your sales-assisted motion? What does that look like? How do you understand the health of your customer or the intent of your customer? And now I'm leaning into different MarTech tools and, and the value of those. But sales is a, is a full-time process. Even if somebody's coming in with a credit card and paying five bucks a month or on a free plan. I always say the transaction's over when the money clears your account. The sale is only over when the customer comes back and reports back that they actually accomplished the intended outcome that they embarked on when they initially invested with you. That's when the sale is complete, because otherwise, up until that point, it's still moot. In their head, they're wondering, have I been ripped off? Was this a good deal? What are the repercussions uh, when things go wrong? And they're catastrophizing all the time. So salespeople who don't have that relationship and they do a drive-by shooting renewal or they sell and run when they make the sale, the customer's just left feeling like they've been used most of the time. And this is encouraged because we're looking for efficiency and we um, actually seem to have sacrificed effectiveness for efficiency or the illusion of efficiency because sending out 10,000 emails that then get blacklisted and blacklisted on <laughs> server means that you're spending an awful lot of money getting zero outcome. 
the fact that there is an industry. In, well, number one, we have to distill that because it's too big for a tattoo. But uh, <laughs> that there's an industry around how to get around spam filters I know. and preserve your domain health has to mean that you're probably doing it wrong. This is this is medicating for a problem you're creating for yourself through bad yeah. habits. Yes. Virtually all the problems that I look at across the entire revenue operations function are in some way intertwined. If you mess with one bit and you don't adjust four or five others in parallel, chances are all you do is you move the problem an imperfect system that's found an unhappy equilibrium is then disturbed. And it's like a spinning top that you keep hitting. Eventually, the wobble will force, force it to fall over. Well, what I've seen in the last seven years is this explosion of technology and this obsession with data. And the customers become this completely forgotten afterthought. The employees who have to execute this stuff finding their values are being jarred because at the end of every month or every quarter, they're being told, put the customer under pressure to make a decision before they're ready. And there's this massive misalignment with where the customer is on their buying journey. If you're not aligning and turning up with where the customer needs you on their buying journey, their moments of peril, their struggling moments, then you're just probably an interruption. Because if you think about it, your customers are operating on an analog waveform, okay? And that's their buying cycle. Meanwhile, you're operating on a digital cycle, and so you only touch at certain points. Now, the problem with that is that most of the time, you're just interrupting and you're noise. And so even if you were initially interesting, then you can very quickly become just something that I want to get rid of, and you get put straight into the spam filter. Now... That's Thanks for going that direction. Shameless yeah. plug. If you're interested in retail or 12-volt automotive sales, visit educarmag.com. That's a uh, publication that I've got where we write about those things. And you speak of the square sine wave. And it's very known thing that the square sine wave is just distortion. Okay. You say noise. It is distortion, which is worse because nothing makes someone angrier than confusion. Get build on that because I've got a lot to say about it. But seeing as I've hogged the conversation so far, I've got build to... build on confusion or build on uh, anger or something. No, build or, on the idea. Build on shameless when, plugs because I've got. Uh, well, you can do, you could do another shameless plug if you like. But what I'm thinking about here is build on the concept that uncertainty and ambiguity then create the knock on effect because whenever we have uncertainty, the first port of call is worst case scenario. That's our brain's instant response. And then we get in a flight scenario. We get into a distrust scenario. And we're back to the point where I was saying before, you exist in a relationship as you start it. If your customer doesn't feel engaged by you, if your customer doesn't feel that you have a clear journey for them, if the customer feels that they're going to, I'm going to find something clean. No, I won't. If the customer is going to use you, or the salesperson is going to use you and run, there's no longevity in that relationship. None. And then you want to roll back a deal? You can talk about the most fun anyone in the sales organization can have in their entire life is doing that. <laughs> okay. So your role, your current role is around product management, isn't it? No, product-led growth. So I'm, 
Right. I'm a utility player. I always have been. I, if I tried to distill my role into a five-minute period, we wouldn't do it. But I'm basically a CRFO around these special audiences in product-led growth. So I do do have enterprise deals I work. I have PLG deals I work. I have special incentive deals. We have startup program. We have a nonprofit program. I'm doing technical partnerships with other developer-focused programs and working with developers and developer advocates. So yes. Okay. So what let's just check all the boxes. Okay, so what you've described there is an ecosystem. You are describing the kind of environment where if someone has problems related to the areas in which you're expert, if you don't have a solution, you know who to go to and who to bring in. Is that fair? That's fair, but it's also being able to articulate, to say back to them, I hear your problem as blank, and this is a resolution I offer for that, pro- for that problem. It is not them coming to you with a problem and saying, this feature fixes it. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest part of my role. That's the part where killing the educational inbound because you don't have that with product-led growth. If you're doing a demo for a PLG product, you need to go back to square one on your PLG. At what point do you show the customer the product? It's hands-on. It's experiential. That's, so it's that's my background. That's my love. It's all the time the customer's hands-on. Well, you provide proper documentation. You say ecosystem, but you also have to build a community with that ecosystem. If you have biodomes and they're empty, what's the point? And that's where it's at. It's creating posture. It's creating culture. It's, it's becoming not only your team as the subject matter experts or the, go-to, the non-selling go-tos for understanding the industry, again, back to the unaware and the barely aware audiences. You're also needing to make sure that you have all the tools in play to support a DIY journey. If you're PLG, you have to assume your customer is buying with a credit card at 3 a.m. because they're having a sleepless night because they're trying to figure out how to solve their problem cheap and easy. And they don't have time for demos. They definitely don't have time in their day to think about this because they're exhausted from being up all night worrying about it. (laughs) And so, yes, you you need your ecosystem fully built. And if you don't have good documentation and you don't have rich media, and you don't have the environments that support your audience, including, this is what makes PLG most affordable, community-led customer service, then it's not going to work. How do you get to the point where you have community-led customer service? You just you have, to, you have to create rabid fans is the, the term some friends of mine use for what they do. Okay. And that takes time. That takes involvement in communities. Sorry, I'm really interested in the community piece. So if we can build on that. Sure, let's go back to the car industry. I was with BMW. You want to talk about a rabid fan base, a protective fan base? These are people that give money to a company for a product, but will defend that product no matter how flawed and defend that company no matter how flawed to the day they die. And make financial investments in polo shirts and and hats and branded wheel wax. How do you build that community? You make a pretty decent product. You do things to sponsor and support the community. If you're in tech and you're trying to work with developers, sponsor some happy hours. Have webinars that are product adjacent, but not directly about the product. Maybe that are problem solving. Start a book club and work with any publishing house will sell you books half price. You know, just simple things, simple, experiential, lifestyle, 
things for your audience. Develop that. We're going back into trust. We're going back into nobility. And that's where your sales at volume comes into play. That's where casting a net starts to work. Because for me, maybe I don't use the product or maybe I get on a free plan and I'm a hobbyist, but then I'm employed somewhere that needs a solution like this. Number one, I'm familiar with it because I've been using it on my own little rinky-dink thing. I trust the organization's stability because they'll send people to hang out at our club events or they'll pay the $200 bar tab for our meetup. And I'm ready to advocate on their behalf. Every sales, who's our champion? Who's our champion? Who's our champion? Nine times out of 10, it's somebody that's never used the product, but is somehow drinking your Kool-Aid. Imagine if your champion could be somebody that already knows and uses the product. That's killer. It's really interesting. Uh, Trainio is a company that takes kids from uh, unlikely backgrounds, uh, helps them break into tech, tech sales. So they train them at their own expense, then they help them headhunt their next boss. And once they get placed, then the company gets paid a fee by the uh, company that hires them. And these guys have got out of the 63 when I interviewed the founder, out of the 63 that they placed in the first seven months, 62 were in the upper quartile. And what was really interesting about that entire environment was that um, they've now got to the point where they've got 200 reps taking a product like Lavender, using it, becoming advocates of it, and then they're using all the different tech stack. So when they move into a job, they're already familiar. And the power of that, having a community that's uh, using this stuff, is high challenge, high support, and very vocal. That's incredibly powerful. That's um, something that I, I speak to. So uh, an ask, I, I talked about corporate social impact and corporate social responsibility. And a big part that I have in it is what we call impact go-to-market. And it's this very teetered line of, are you a corporate social profiteer or are you doing things that benefit nonprofits? Are you treating them like a, just a vertical to sell into or are you treating them like a nonprofit that you want to advocate for and help improve? And one of the things that I've noticed over time talking to these employees, whether they're moving from the private sector to the nonprofit sector, from the nonprofit sector to the private sector, is this invisible equity that's being built by having impact go to market, by being able to sell product to nonprofits at a discounted rate so that these nonprofits aren't, the employees aren't perceived as, oh, you use a Windows 95 machine with Lotus 321, and that's, that is the extent of your tech stack acumen. And that's not the case. If you go to the... Um, Tech for Good Symposium, they have an Airtable database of hundreds of organizations and tech platforms. We're talking big stuff, Slack, Oracle, Okta, that have free or discounted plans for nonprofits to use. And so long as we're avoiding giving them tech debt and product that they don't need, that's another dangerous salesperson avenue. That's a whole different show we'll go into. We are creating that invisible equity for people. So it's not just these training organizations. There's a nonprofit that I work with, The Last Mile, who has a tech training program in prisons. And what they've been able to build is a zero recidivism rate huh? for inmates wow. based on the training. That's really impressive. The, the only other thing that I've seen come close to that is Mimi Silva's Delancey Street, where they had a 98% success rate. That's very impressive. 
So what are they doing that's different? They're committed to the program. It's just a nonprofit, lastmile.org. And they do tech training for inmates to learn different technologies and get a leg up. You have to remember a lot of these people are coming from environments where they don't even have internet access at home. Yeah. They're sitting on the curb in front of a Taco Bell trying to connect, using a lot of American stuff. They're using the Wi-Fi at a takeaway. How about that? that, that that's fine. Um, we, we all know what a Taco Bell is and Wi-Fi. <laughs> we're, we're still it's creeping up to the 21st century. This has been such a fascinating conversation, which could go in so many different directions. Okay, tell me this. You've been building community for a while. And in the green room, something you said was never refuse an invitation. I'm really curious how those two things meld. Ooh. So let's let's use one of my most hated phrases. Network equals net worth. That's not the case. Relationships to me are banking relationships. And you must make deposits before you make withdrawals. Surprisingly, they're interest-bearing. So make all the deposits you can. When you're building strong community, it's not about engaging the individual who is your active customer. It's not about engaging the person. I make a joke about NASCAR jackets. Daytona USA was yesterday. What a, what a, what a, the 500, what a wonderful race. And the, the NASCAR jacket analogy to me is people putting patches on. I'm sponsored by, I'm affiliated with, I have these things. It's, you go on LinkedIn and everybody's like X hyphen some fang company. You're not building community if you're only swagger jacking, if you're only being a culture vulture. You're building community by being involved in a community from helping kids understand what your product is and does to the disenfranchised, having access to it and the tools needed to even access what you're doing. Simple exposure and, and creating it in a holistic fashion. That's building community. That's building brand recognition. That's building trust. And the invitation is find those opportunities and go for them. And the bigger scale for me is once you are a trusted member of any community, you will be invited to stuff. You will get your seat at the table. You will get your foot in the door. You'll be leaning in the doorframe, eavesdropping, and no one will ask you to leave, even though you're a dirty salesperson. But what's missing nowadays, I think, is patience. People are always in a hurry. A lot of my coaching clients come to me and they're always, you know, you know things aren't happening as fast as I want. But actually, if they were to slow down and maybe ask the kind of questions we were asking maybe 20 minutes ago and say, okay, well, what do I have to do to spend 80% of my time with the 3% who are active? And how do I, how do I generate my, focus my energy on them? What do I need to do beforehand? in order so that when they move from making space to active looking, they're interested in receiving my material and talking to me. And when they move into active looking, I'm already the first to come to mind because we've already had conversations. I've been credible. I've showed up reliably. I've been valuable and timely. I haven't wasted their time with spamming them or pitching them. Never tried to sell them a meeting before they were ready. And then somehow you miraculously become the brand on their NASCAR jacket. There you go. Because the people they're affiliated with are like, oh, wow, that company did something for me. I will never be a customer. I can't be a customer. I'm a stakeholder at this point. But you're working with them. That's great. That's hard to do. It's extremely hard to do because there's pressure on the on highs. There's pressure from the on highs. It's very hard to push 
what is the business case? What's our ROI? And like you said, it's patience. There's a, there's a, there's a need of immediacy that can't happen. I was in public sector for a while, DOD, IC, SLED, FedSiv, all that fun stuff. And that's long contract cycle. Like you, you don't rush those deals. A lot of times you're quoting nine, 10 times. You're quoting with a partner. You're, you're just doing it. In the meantime, your stakeholders don't, they have some say. You can't bribe them. You can't buy anybody drinks or send them free swag. You just have to be trustworthy. You just have to be legitimate. And sometimes it's not buying just on price, but you have to wait, be patient. But almost never. I mean, when, when I've interviewed CFOs and I've interviewed a fair number of them, what I've found is that price is never the real issue. What they really want to know is, can I be certain that the outcome I believe I'm going to get, I will get? Because if they have any uncertainty, then that automatically fires off their amygdala and they go into freeze, flight, fight or flop, which means that most of the time you're probably being ghosted or ignored because it's something you've said or done. And I think this is something that we really need to reinstill, which is reflection. I, I don't see people spending any time in reflection and review. Thoughts? No, agreed. And this is, this is where we're back into the square sine wave. When you get distortion, you turn on the volume. So it's very hard to have reflection. It's so much easier to say that they're the problem. It's not me, it's you. Oh, they weren't the right buyer. It wasn't the right moment. We get into all these, Vant is one of my least favorite out there. Oh, they didn't have the budget. Oh, that, that, they weren't the buyer. They didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't really have a need. Oh, they're not buying now. Like you can make up all the excuses you want, but that's all you're doing is you're making excuses. You're doing from assumption. I love anecdotal evidence. I live and die by it but I don't ever live off assumptive evidence. And I think that's where people get confused is how they're emotionally reacting to bad news is the truth. That's not the case. So explain the difference. Anecdotal. anecdotal You give yourself anecdotal evidence. You can say, I I was not feeling well that day. When I went in and I talked to them, I had spent the morning in traffic. I had, my kid would not get dressed to go to school. I was running behind on everything. I didn't get sleep. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. That's fine. You, you make that explanation. Then you reflect. The anecdotal evidence is, if I'm not feeling well, I don't go into a pitch. If I have a rough evening, I reschedule. So I don't screw it up again. Let's say you go in and you talk to the customer and you get their name wrong, or you mispronounce the name of the company. That's one of my favorites. Or you don't understand what they actually do. Then you didn't do your research. And you reflect on it that I didn't do my research. That's the anecdotal. The assumptive is, well, I went in there. I knew what I was talking about. I did it. Our product is perfect. They just, they just weren't ready. They weren't feeling it. They didn't like me. That's, that's a great one. They didn't like me. That's assumptive. Your anecdotal is, it has to have evidence behind it. It's a two-parter. Assumptive is just when you're making it up in your own head. Anecdotal is when you have a cause and an ending, whether it be a resolution or, or anything else. You get great anecdotal evidence from trade booths. You have people come up to you and go, I have a bone to pick with you. I know you're not product. I know you're a salesperson, but I need you to be my feedback loop. I need you to get this to them. My first complaint is I don't have a way to contact your product people and make my complaint. Great. That's anecdotal. Yeah. Assumptive is that customer churns. You've never talked to them and you assume, oh, they're going on a business. They're not a right fit. Let's see who they go with. They're broke. Oh, they're broke. They need to go with something cheap. They're DIY. They're going with open source, whatever it may be. 
it's fascinating because I, I mean, everything that you're saying resonates because I hear these excuses day in, day out. And what still baffles me is why management continue to tolerate them without confronting them. And I think that's because the middle management layer is the most under pressure, undervalued, uh, undertrained, and unconsciously incompetent bunch. Not because they're bad people, but because they get thrown in at the deep end with next to no runway or training. And they tend to do what was done to them, or they do what they think is best. And with the ambiguity coming from above, then they get it in the neck. And you look at the number of managers who are trying to go back to individual contributor roles now. It strikes me that we have to do something about this because these guys and gals are having the, uh, such a tough time and they've got 5, 10, 15 people reporting to them. If you're an investor, you've got to be looking at that and thinking that's a major area of vulnerability in the business. And we're heavily exposed. Do you close the vulnerability? Do you amplify the vulnerability? Do you see it as an unnecessary layer? No, I think a good manager is really valuable, but good managers aren't supervisors. Good managers hire brilliant people and then create the conditions so those brilliant people can do their best work every day. That's a manager's job. It's not to supervise and control and redo the work and all of that stuff. So they, you know, they're coaches, they're strategists, they're planners, they're roadblock clearers. And that, that's the job of a manager in my head. But most, so we're back to community. Yeah, we're absolutely back to You've community. got the right documentation. You've got the right training. You've got the right tools. You've got the right peer training environments. Do we get into the school teacher argument where it's hard to be an effective manager when you have too much headcount and we should have headcount caps? Mm. Ooh, I silenced the Marcus. Is there a prize for that? No, no, no. I, I, I was leaving space for you to continue, but because uh, I don't often leave uh, silence. <laughs> okay, this is interesting. So we've, we've pretty much come to the top of the hour, but t- tell me this. If you look back over the years you've been in business, what was the best mistake? The mistake that you look back on that, and at the time it may have hurt badly, But you look back on it and you think, yeah, that was a pivotal, that was a turning point. Glad it happened. Quitting a really good full-time role to become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. That's that's always solid. It's it's one of those weird addictions that I do recommend to people, but I remind them there's no turning back. It's like entering the restaurant industry or the car industry. It's you're gonna boomerang. But I think my my big, my big, big, big failpreneur moment, I had a very large company. I was in 35 territories. I had 350 people working for me across gig workers were the majority of it, full-time employees, part-time employees. And it was a B2B, B2C, and B2Gig economy company. And I loved that diversity. It gave me a lot of perspective that I, that I apply every day, having those many different stakeholders and being a co-mingler for them. And the moment that I learned, and we were talking about the managers, was I learned my capacity as a manager and that there is a certain level of cheerleading, of the galvanizing aspect that I'm not good in mass. I'm not a politician 
you're not going to have a large crowd rallying around me. But I'll tell you what, I got friends that will fight tooth and claw to the death side by side with me. And that's what I needed to deploy in my own environment. So I know I'm not, I don't want to sit C-suite ever again. I don't want to sit large company founder. I love being a solopreneur in a lot of different aspects. And, and I think that was my big, that's my big learning moment. That's my big takeaway is having to build something huge, essentially on my own, in an environment that is very caustic and learning the hard way that the problems with the company for a good while were problems with my personality and trying to be everything for everyone. Once I fixed that, my life became a whole lot better. Okay. So let's wrap up on the original promise, which is making the best out of bad situations. What advice would you give to people who find themselves in challenging situations when maybe they're thinking that they're out of their depth or they're struggling? First of all, how can they calm themselves so that they can think clearly? Rest on gratitude. So the way you're going to clear your mind, the way you're going to get the focus, and this this goes for a lot of different mentalities. Entrepreneurship is hard. A lot of the times you seem manic, you're high, you're low, it's over small things, it's over big things, you're unable to communicate with each other because people don't understand what you're saying. Your spouse, one of my favorite terms is a spousal eavesdrop, where my wife in my business only knew what was going on because she overheard me telling somebody else in some environment. And it was usually inappropriate. It was somebody that did not need to know that, but she did. And being able to pull back and work on gratitude and work on understanding when to cut rope, when to cut your losses on scenarios and not be drugged down by them. The gratitude is great because then you analyze, is what I'm doing worth doing for what I have? And the things that I love having right now, the things going on in my life right now, how do they relate to this thing? And if this thing's going to destroy them, get rid of this thing. If this thing is what makes them happen and work, then you got to tough it out. And in the meantime, you have to figure out ways to make it better. And for me, it was hiring middle managers. It was hiring people to gap me from the masses. Interesting. So what are you watching, reading, listening to at the moment that's really feeding your uh, imagination? Feeding my imagination. Oh, there's a new Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds, and always Doctor Who. Okay. Um, you might be familiar with that. I think it's on five. But, uh, you know, I abhor TV. I am a terrible, I love collecting books because I need something for the dust to settle on. So I don't have to dust that often. <laughs> I have, so in my work, I like interviewing people. When I started in corporate social impact two years ago, it was my first time in it. And I said, I'm going to talk to three people a week. And that's what I did. And then I turned it into a podcast. Hey, good chat at goodchat.org. And then I started remembering when my role expanded to all this product-led growth. I love this space. When it did technical partnerships, I'm like, I really miss being a developer evangelist. I really miss doing technical partnerships. I really miss doing this kind of work. So I started another podcast, Pitch Slap at pitchslap.org. And for me, the media I consume is the media I create. And it's not me just monologuing and developing an echo chamber. It's talking to people like you, Marcus, who I met through Julia and Justin in the GTM games where I came in second twice. <laughs> no, no, that's one a second of 15,000. Come on, I'll, I'll, I'll settle for that. Go yeah. back on the gratitude. It, no, 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 I, I, absolutely. I, I'm sorry, you're absolutely right. 
That's uh, and it, I made. I mean, I you were phenomenal when you. I was attached. Yeah, yeah, I made a friend in you. Yeah, and more power to it. But again, I'm, I'm say I'm really impressed that that the whole concept of Julius is fantastic, and the idea of sellers them um, learning about marketing, marketing learning about sales, the whole gladiatorial side of it. And um, that the community that's being built around that is just very, very clever. And there we go again. Yeah. The community, of course. The peer training. Yeah. Removing all that, all the expensive gateway, the, the stuff that you can't define the ROI until you're getting the anecdotal feedback. That's important. And w- w- let's plug their book. Let's just plug it. Reinventing virtual events. Yeah. And uh, it's not that bad. <laughs> I might write that as my review for them. Um, <laughs> not that uh, I'm not sure that they'll thank me for it, but it's a good review. I like that. Okay, so what I'm fascinated by with the whole piece around community is that it's humanity's superpower is our ability to cooperate and come together around difficult problems. What I don't understand is why this isn't the norm. And why we've got this command and control infrastructure that's been, or um, uh, methodology that's been set up in terms of management and leadership. Because you could do so much less work and make so much more money if you galvanize the uh, talent and knowledge and expertise of all of your people instead of trying to make everything happen through a tiny bunch of leaders and executives and occasionally shoving a few decisions into your management layer. It just seems like inc- it's incredibly wasteful. No one wants to be the neck in the news. Hmm. And then, you know, as we discussed before, distrust. We've gotten away from always assuming positive intent. We've gotten away from the nobility of the salesperson being a helper and an advisor and a guide. And until we can get even remotely close back to that, like you said in the intro, my blind side was being a Midwesterner who worked with small businesses and thought a handshake was all you needed. Hmm. You know, knowing somebody's mother's phone number where I'm from, has far more value than any unenforceable contract you can write. Of course. But that, that, again, I think we've dehumanized the whole marketing and sales process because the customers become a commodity, companies have become financial instruments, and salespeople are utilities to be burnt through in short shrift because it doesn't really matter. You, know, you, you just look at what's happened in the last couple of months with 200,000-plus layoffs in the tech space. And yeah, these are bright, capable people who've been thrown aside in order to meet a valuation number that's out of date by supper time. Nobody's at fault, though. And that's not me going back into this assumptive and, you know, I'm, I'm not the problem scenario. It, well, is, I, think, I think it's a wicked problem. And yeah. we, have to re, we have to re-examine what the implications are of having a business model like that driving so many hundreds of billions of dollars every month, don't we? system seems to be encouraging the propagation of the worst kind of behaviors. Selfishness, deceit, manipulation, bullying. How is any of that productive? If you're a farmer and you beat your plow horse mercilessly and you failed to feed it and you gave it bad equipment so it damaged it, do you go out of business pretty quick? Well, up until now, because they've had so much money and it was so cheap and virtually free, and they could do whatever they like. Now, they don't have that option, I think. There's always another mule. 
there's plenty of fish in the sea. So if you're talking in, the, in regards to the customer, that's the whole point of casting a net. That's the whole point of doing that. And when you're talking about your salespeople, especially ones new to the world, they're trained on your method. They're trained in your way. And it's churn and burn at that point. The auto industry used to term we, uh, called working your list. You'd hire some kid who loves cars, who really wants to be involved in the industry, who's very passionate about the space and just wants to be affiliated with it. And you bring them on as a salesperson. You train them poorly. You show them really bad ways of doing things and interacting with customers. And then you slap a quote on them. They have that number floating above their head and they panic and they work their list. So their grandma comes in and buys a car. Their cousin comes in and buys a car. And then the next month, they're out of list. And they either have to prove themselves as a salesperson or you bring in the next kid whose grandma needs a car. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where I've always seen the issue, that people can be disposable. It's Maybe it's me, but I find that whole the line of thinking deeply offensive. When- <laughs> I, I, I agree. I know you agree, but I, I find it deeply offensive. But only is it offensive from a, a moral standpoint. But commercially, it just doesn't make sense. If you could make five times as much money and create more sustainability within your business, so you had higher levels of staff retention, which will in, inevitably lead to higher levels of engagement and higher levels of customer retention, then your profits go up, which means you have more money to spend. The money that you've just invested in this company will go further. It allows you to do more interesting things. There is a virtuous circle with all of this, but doing it the other way, there is, there's only upside for a tiny handful of people and everyone else has to be sold a lie. Okay. This goes back into patience, Marcus. Finding a salesperson has a five-year quota and not a monthly. That's what makes the difference. That's a really interesting idea. This is, this is just starving. If companies didn't have quarterly earnings reports and stock prices that switched by the second, it might be a little different. There is a need of immediacy. And yes, I feel to get there. There is in public companies, Peter, but there isn't in private companies. Private companies could actually say, you know, to hell with that. We're going to actually take the time to create the conditions so this business can be absolutely rock solid. And, and there are businesses like that. There are. There now, are. I look at 37 Signals. What a wonderful business. They've got hundreds of thousands of customers coughing up 50 bucks a month, and they've got 80 staff. I mean, I would much prefer to have a little business, a little business like that, that makes a shed load of profit and people stay, they're highly engaged, they're massively involved in all sorts of decision making, they delegate, um, and people feel empowered, than a billion dollar corporation losing one cent and it being a miserable environment. Why, why would you not want a business like that as an investor or an employee or a founder? Because it's not sexy, because you don't get called a unicorn, because it's harder work, because there's no playbook for it. Mm. It's not, I don't think it's a lack of one. I think it's a lack of accessibility. It's really interesting. It's such a shame we've come to time. I'm heartbroken because I could talk to you for hours. Can you book another another window? We can do that. That would be nice. I'd love to have you back. Okay. So, Peter, how can people get hold of you? JPeterWheeler.com is my uh, poorly updated portfolio site. LinkedIn is usually best. LinkedIn.com 
forward slash in forward slash J Peter Wheeler. Those are the best ways to get a hold of me. I always accept a connection because I made that silly mantra of never refuse an invitation. So just don't connect and pitch. Oh, actually do. I need show material. And if you want to be on the shows, heygoodchat.org or goodchat.org. I was able to buy a better domain late recently and uh, pitchslap.org, which I think is important for this audience. Very important for this audience. Excellent. Okay, so you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of, of the idiot Peter, age 23. What one bit of choice advice would you give him that you know he would have ignored at that age, but would have been absolutely golden? I was written up in a financial publication for me abandoning Bitcoin in 2013. All right. Yeah, I, I had hundreds of them to my name, bought at $3 a piece, sold them at 12 though, so I'll, I'll consider it a win. That's not the advice. I don't care about that. Yeah. And I'm going to go back to gratitude. I, I have two amazing kids. I have a, a tolerant wife. I have a comfortable lifestyle. I have a job that I truly, truly love. And I had some really shitty past moments. Yes, I finally got the E on this podcast episode. And I don't want to change that. What I will say to my 23-year-old self is reinvest. Just one word reinvest. I wasted money. I wasted time not properly reinvesting in myself. I dropped out of college three times. I will never finish, but maybe. Would it have altered where I'm at now? Maybe. So hopefully 23-year-old me doesn't listen to that. So there we go. I don't know, dude. No, that's very interesting. Okay. Currently impossible for you that if it was possible would be a game changer. I've been talking to a lot of people lately. And so we'll, let's merge these two questions. 23 years ago, if the technology and the tools and the organizations were available 23 years ago to, or as a 23-year-old, oh God, it's almost the same number. If I had the tools na- that are available now and being a solopreneur could do anything. So anybody now that doesn't think that they can start, when you've got, plat- when you've got all these AI tools, when you've got Fiverr, when you've got Upwork, when you've got things like Canva, the DIY stuff, you've got access to all of this, most of it free, if not extremely cheap. And you reinvest in yourself and you come up with even a half decent idea and you're able to pursue it. That's the big win. That's combining your two questions into one answer. Okay. One final question then. Is there anything that you in particular are looking for help with that my network or the listeners might be able to help? Oh, I don't know. If you know a startup or a nonprofit that's looking for great identity or authentication product for their community or platform that they're building, you can reach out to me at my professional address. You can get that through LinkedIn. On a personal level, I have no idea. I've got my little side projects. Go and listen to the dang shows, rate and review, put high numbers, Go and visit my friends. Trevor Van Warden has the Hotness Unleasher. We talked about Julia and Michael and the GTM games and Hip Cycle. We, let's talk about Juliana Jackson and uh, her podcast. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great people out there and we should all support them. So my ask is give me more podiums to promote great people. There we go. That's a lovely proposition. Peter Wheeler, thank you. Thanks, buddy. Book some more time. Talking soon. Will be. So, this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. 
and go to your favorite podcast channel and leave an honest review. Give me a one star, a five star, or anywhere in between, not fast. I'm looking for principled enterprise salespeople who are at a crossroads in their life. They are deciding, do they want to carry on working in the environment where they're having to maybe sacrifice their values to be successful, or they want to work out how to be more successful without having to compromise? If that sounds like you, then please do get in touch, marcus at laughs-last.com or ping me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.